that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. Kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and I've got a, a very special episode planned for you this week. Chris is going to ride this one out because, as everybody knows, he uh, he loathes jam band music and the band widespread panic so i didn't want to put him through any uh any more pain and suffering than he has to so he's uh he's riding this one out in memphis this week but i do have two uh great guests and uh, i'll get to them in just a second i do want to tell you before we get started to follow us on twitter at digital killed and like our facebook page and our instagram page digital kill the radio star podcast and uh, follow us and if you get a chance leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts. we'd greatly appreciate that so uh, our first guest this week is a gentleman by the name of Rick Barley, and he emailed me this summer about possibly doing a widespread panic um, podcast. Uh, he'd heard me talking about them on, on State of America and on Digital Killed the Radio Star, and uh, I've always wanted to do a widespread panic podcast, but I was kind of trying to figure out how I was going to do it and the angle I was going to go with. So uh, he and I exchanged emails back and forth uh, the last couple of months, and we were able to get this one set up, so welcome to the podcast, Rick Barley. Thank you for having me. Dude. And then my second guest is uh, a lady by the name of Sue Ann Strider, and if I'm being honest, we've known each other since we were four years old, and uh, we grew up together and uh, from K-4 through uh, high school, uh, and uh, she, early on, and I birth early on, had a love for music, and, and I remember in elementary school, us... Uh, Sitting around with boombox, listening to Van Halen's 1984 and Poison's "Look What the Cat Dragged Me In," and uh, she has gone on to be a massive widespread Panic fan. Had a lot of interaction with the band and, and has a lot of cool stories. So, welcome to the podcast, Sue Ann Strider. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, this is going to be fun. All right, so um, the band is Widespread Panic. Uh, they are one of the most consistent. Uh, touring acts in the country and have been for a while uh, usually sell out wherever they go multiple night runs uh, but a lot of people um, listening to this podcast may not have heard of them because they do not have a single song that you're ever going to hear on the radio uh, they've never had a radio hit and they have uh, they have built their reputation through live touring which i like and i appreciate um, I first, they first came on my radar probably 1993 1994 probably 1994 when i got to college and um, have been a big fan of them uh, ever since. 
Um, so, Sue Ann, I'll throw it to you first. What was your first uh, memory of widespread panic, and when did you really get into them? Um, I first remember being in the freshman dorm at Delta State University, and my roommate, Tori, at the time, she had a copy of Ain't Like Grand, and I'd never heard of widespread panic, just like you. You know, we went to such a small school in such a rural area. We never heard of much. Uh, but, um, till we got to college, but ain't my friend just kind of changed my life in a way. Uh, I just fell in love with that album and then immediately got Space Wrangler and every day. And, uh, ever since I have been just a diehard fan, uh, for me, Wildsburg Panic, it is a jam band. It is like the Grateful Dead It's the band. It gets compared to the the whole scene gets compared to a lot. Um, but the music style is, is different in the sense that Wattsburg Panic to me is more authentic rock and roll, Southern rock and roll, maybe Southern fried rock and roll. Whereas the dead is of course a California uh, creation with more traditional uh, things like um, bluegrass um, gospel thrown in more heavily than in Wattsburg Panic. So it really speaks to me. Watch for Panic always has really spoken to me, being a Southerner myself, and hearing in these songs so many of the same feelings I had about being a Southerner. And I'm very proud of that fact. There's no doubt about that. But we have problems down here. Um, I'm reminded of Jerry Joseph's song, North. You know, um, I'm going to get myself up north and find out who the hell I am because sometimes it's hard to break out of the stereotypes that we have down here. But Wasper Panic has certainly done that, and I think, now I know for myself, they've helped me do that in my life, and I know a lot of other people from the South as well who don't feel uncomfortable any longer being themselves, their true selves, because they've been exposed to this band in some way, and I know that's a big statement, but it's true. It is definitely true. Rick, what about you? Where'd you jump on board? Well, I came in around 90 six right in there i had uh believe it or not i lived in south carolina around hilton head for three years and you know at that time dave matthews was really hitting out and i had moved to charlotte and i started working at a company and uh one of the guys that worked there uh, he had some friends that owned a used and you remember this a used cd store when you can go and buy used mm-hmm. cds and uh i walked in there one day uh, on a saturday and 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 heard uh, what I I think believed it was uh, Hatfield playing over the, uh, the, the the system in the store and uh, I said excuse me <laughs> what, what is that and uh, the guy introduced himself and he said well this is a band called Widespread Panic they're from the south here he said you ever heard of them I said no so at that time you could put headphones on and listen in private to music if you wanted to buy it and uh, well I listened to it and immediately I think what what struck me is, and we have a lot of similar backgrounds, Dave, in music and, and stuff, that it was kind of everything that I had ever listened to all wrapped into one. And uh, I uh, I just took to it, much like Sue Ann said. I I remember he, uh, his name was Jim, and he sent, he, he gave me like three, I think he gave me every day, <laughs> uh, Eight Life Grand and uh, the first one, uh, you know, and he said, take these home. If you like them, come back and see me. And uh well, I did, and uh, we developed a friendship, and um, from that point on, I started uh, 
going with those guys to see shows and, and, and really diving into the band. And, um, boy, uh, boy, did I deep dive into them too, man. I, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't in college at the time I was married and, uh, you know, we're away from home, you know, 10 hours away and just, uh, you know, I was in my mid to late twenties there and, uh, you know, my first child was born and, uh, I got to tell you, there was a period in my life there where, man, I, I listened to that band every day, all day long. I, I was a traveling sales rep and, uh, man, I got out there and I had to drive a lot of miles and, uh, boy, they got me through the day and, man, I started listening to all the live shows. So I just, I did a deep dive into them and, uh, buddy, they're just a fantastic band now. I, I mean, I could go on for hours, I guess, Dave. But that was that was back in the time if amazing. you wanted to show, you had to get it on a cassette. <laughs> well, yeah, and 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 you're right, but but also too, right around that ninety six, ninety seven time, that is when we had the dial up internet, and we could download some stuff at the time, and uh, it took you forever to do it. But yeah, when I and the guys that I met that I was friends with, they started having some of these shows on CD, so. Uh, we were, I started getting some of that live stuff. And, uh, again, I just met a whole bunch of new people down there. And, and not only that, it opened me up to a lot of different styles of music and different types of music. And I learned that, uh, being in the South, uh, was a fantastic music scene at the time and still is, uh, you know, I grew up here in, uh, Ohio and Ohio still is stuck in the eighties. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, for me, it, uh, I always had a, I'd always had a little penchant for Southern rock, uh, and being, being a huge Skinner guy and, and, and just different things growing up that my dad listened to and my dad's friends and just what I was exposed to widespread panic came along at a really, really good time for me. And, uh, I just think the world of them from a musical standpoint and as a band, I just, uh, you know, they're egoless and, uh, like she lands, they're just very, very wholesome. And uh, I love, yeah, their music. <clears throat> well, you talk about being exposed to music and that's, I compare them a lot to, you know, obviously my favorite bands, the Black Crows. And because of the Black Crows, I'm a fan of Little Feet. Because of the Black Crows, I'm a fan of Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen. You know, um, they expose you to a lot of music. And Widespread Panic has, has always done that. You know, for instance, Traffic. They exposed me to Traffic with Low Spark of High Heeled Boys and, um, you know, Funkadelic, Maggot Brain, you know, stuff like that. They've they've always been really, really good about that. And it's always a mark of a good band when you're not scared to play somebody else's song. Um, you know, and, and they play some, you know, they play some more deeper tracks from a lot of artists we love. Um, you know, they're good about that and they're good exposing people to music. So I really appreciate that about them. All right, Sue Ann. So obviously they're a band that people go to see a lot. Uh, a lot of people take off work for a week or two, follow them for a run and, Nowadays, when they go somewhere, they stay there two or three nights for a weekend, and that's it. Um, they've reached that level of success where they can do that. Um, I haven't seen them nearly as many times as you guys have. We were talking earlier. So, Sue Ann, how many times have you think you've seen them? I think it's somewhere between 100 and 125. Um, <clears throat> and then I've seen some side projects of JoJo's quite a bit more than any of the rest i did see dick chestnut in a in a version of brute at uh, proud larry's some years ago um but um yeah i i at first it was just me listening to the studio albums for about two years 
uh, because I just wasn't ready to dive into the whole scene. I'd never even, I thought the Grateful Dead was heavy metal music until I actually paid attention and, and realized after finding out about Cream Puff War that Bots Her Panic covered that that was a dead song. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe it's okay for me to like the Grateful Dead. That's not, you know, it always seemed to have a bad connotation where I'm from. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, they, well, about the live shows when I first, the first live show I ever went to like that was a fish show. And uh, it hooked me, it really did, but I just couldn't wait at that point to get to the Wise for Panic show I was looking forward to going to at Mud Island in 96. And that show just, and I already loved the band, uh, but I equally loved Fish and The Dead and several others at that point, Dave Matthews. But after that night, it was just all she wrote for me. And um, I'll never forget the drums, the drum solo that night in 96 at Mud Island. It was... Uh, during rock that just I, I was watching all of my friends at delta state that had gone it was a big group of us that had gone and i was watching them all dance like nobody's watching and everybody having so much fun and just realizing you know this is this is what it's all about this is something special um for this album for me for uh till the medicine takes this album that we're talking about today um it, it was a departure of course, it was a departure in style for Panic. Um, it went more in the direction of what maybe the younger generation was listening to at that time because they had been around since 88. Um, this was coming out in uh, 99, so we're talking about, you know, 11 years of them really solidifying their own signature sound um, and then coming out with it that, that was all very melodic and monotone uh complicated but monotone uh more of a jazzy laid-back jammy style definitely more country than this album until the medicine takes and as a matter of fact there are songs on this one that sound like a house or a dance song like um when i'm steve the way it's done with the scratching and uh bears gone fishing and of course the type the uh the first track on the album, Surprise Valley. Um, you know, it was a real division at the time when the album first came out. There was a split almost right down the middle, it seemed, between the newcomers and the people who had been around and known about Panic for a while and really loved the signature style more. Um, and I remember it being a little bit of a... Of a, a feeling like you were going up a hill, uh, steadily rising up a hill to see the crowd react. In 99, I went to a lot of shows in 99 uh, and 98 when they were playing and debuting those songs from Till Minutes and Takes pre-release. And, you know, at first, of course, everybody's wondering, what is this? Uh, and not knowing if they liked it. But by the end of 99, by the time New Year's came around for 99, uh, you know, it was one over. Uh, everybody would seem to be one over about it. And the, the debate seems to go on, you know, do you like the disco panic or do you like the traditional panic? And I guess that's, that's going to continue. Um, what are y'all's thoughts about that on the, the different style of the album? It's their bet to me, it's their best produced album uh, that they've ever done uh, up until dirty side down. 
And then um, I loved. I, I, I mean, it's it's my favorite. It's my favorite of their album of theirs. And the great thing about it is, I think a lot of times on a lot of their studio albums, it's with a lot of bands like this, they have a hard time capturing that live sound. And to me, the the songs suffer on on a lot of studio releases versus the live versions. Uh, but this one, I think they got it. I think they nailed it. What about you, Rick? Yeah, the, I. You know, every I think we've talked before. Every band kind of has a peak in their career where they're just, you know, they're 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 just at their best. And I would say this particular album was their studio opus, I guess you could say, wherever you want to use, where they really dug in. And I think you listen to this, especially listening to this album on headphones. It 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 kind of takes, you know, you talked about the live sound on their on their other albums. I think this one they really drug the studio in and the mixing of it. it they were really digging into the studio and, and there's such a variety of music on this particular release and at the time and so Ann will tell you too in 99 you know they, they had a lot of influences into their music and, and i think they were completely 100 percent comfortable in their own skin and they uh, they laid down a very entertaining and very uh cool album that just uh i just I don't know if it's their best album, and I hate to even rank albums, but I think at the time, they were just at their peak creativity, playing everything about that band was at its peak, and that album came out of that, and uh, I believe it is a just a well-crafted album. Well, and I think it helped take them from kind of a regional-slash-scene band to more of a national band. Um, that could, you know, eventually it got them into arenas um, consistently. Um, this was this was one of my favorite times of the band, and and when the really and we're gonna, if you haven't guessed, folks, the topic is till the medicine takes. Um, it was one of my favorite album release days. Uh, I remember it very vividly, and and I just, I mean, I, I there's no telling how many CDs I've gone through of this, just worn it out, and then when they reissued it on vinyl, I guess it's a year or so ago got it it's a really cool um vinyl release that they did for it uh the album came out on june 27th 1999 it was the last album on the capricorn label and it was recorded at john Keane studio in athens georgia and it debuted at number 68 on the billboard charts and that's notable because that was still back when people bought music and the charts were a big deal for a band with no radio play to make it to number 68 on the charts pretty big deal don't you think rick oh absolutely and I think it also reminded uh, or also brought out that widespread panic, even though, you know, we pigeonhole them as a well, pigeonhole, they are a southern based band. Uh, I think across the across the country, it told you just how many people really did know about them. I mean, they have unbelievable following out west. I've never went out there to see them. But, you know, you, I've heard the stories and pretty much know they've got a huge following out there. So um, I think that's what we saw was they were a little bit more popular than maybe we thought and her music was a lot more appreciated and i think that reflected those albums sue ann speaking of going out west i know you've seen them numerous times at red rocks haven't you yes i have um i i don't know exactly how many times off off the top of my head um i'm jealous <laughs> i i know that i know that in 99 it was a two or three night run uh right there let's see I know that I was um, at 
the show at Red Rocks where they uh, debuted Surprise Valley. That was six twenty-seven ninety-nine, um, and it was actually I think it might have been the night before I met for the first time anybody in the band other than JoJo, who's been friends with. Us. I've, I'd met him a few times before, friends of friends in Oxford, Mississippi, where he went to school at Ole Miss, and has lots of friends. Um, but I, I, that particular the night before. I got to go backstage and meet uh, the first person I got to meet. The first one of them I walked straight into, basically, when I, they let me go back there was Todd Nance. And I was so starstruck because I wasn't expecting him to just be hanging around with all, everybody. You know, I kind of expected the band to be, you know, squirreled away in their ivory tower somewhere with people pampering them. And um, it, it was not that way at all. Uh, Todd was just as friendly and down to earth, um, and I, I was speechless. And he's, he he reached out his hand to me. He could tell I was struggling, and he said, "And your name is?" And I said, <laughs> "My name is Sue Ann, and you you guys are my favorite band. You just I, I I just I love music, and you're my favorite band." And and then I then I froze again, and he said, "And you are from." <laughs> And uh, that just says a lot right there about the band as a whole. Um, I've been so very blessed in my life to have such wonderful friends that I met through this band um, and because of this band. Yes. And because of them, I got to meet the band several times. And, you know, I, I can honestly vouch for the fact that everything that you in, everybody who's never met them that is a big fan and has these ideas about how great these guys are. For the most part, it's true. You know, everybody has their bad days, but I have to say, um, beyond impressed with these human beings uh, on this earth. I, I can't imagine the stress that they go through, yet, you know, time after time after time for years and years, they would allow backstage access to, you know, lots and lots of people. Now, it's it's not like it used to be at all, and of course, that's understandable, Uh uh, I know some members of the band are trying to stay sober. That's wonderful. And the backstage scene is never somewhere you want to be if you're trying to stay sober. And so they, from what I understand, still stick to this little, the, the rule that they've got now is family only, pretty much, or extremely, extremely close friends. You know, um, they're protecting themselves more. But um, anyway, uh and as far as Red Rocks goes, uh, and what to 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 talk a little bit more about what Rick was saying about not realizing how popular this band was, I had no idea either until I went out to Red Rocks. I really thought because I'd never heard of Red Rocks before. I was still young and uh, still in the Mississippi Delta, going to a little teacher's college, and I was so excited. I was going out west for the first time ever in my life, and. Uh, it was, it was such a dream come true that it's hard for me to even describe. I, that was at the time when Chief Hosa uh, State Park was still open during shows, which is the the state park on the mountain right behind Red Rocks and Morrison. So we were we had a campsite there, and we also had a hotel room in town. We just came ready, and uh, it just so happened. Now, this part, I can't remember if it was 99 or the year after, but anyway, I think it was 99. Galactic was opening. Which, whichever year it was Galactic opened. 
which could have been 98. That would have been the first time I ever went to Red Rocks. Therefore, I, you know, you forget things when you're a Panic fan <laughs> from time to time. But anyway, um, Galactic was opening that year. My friend, I had a friend named Mandy who knew the manager of Galactic very well. So we ended up getting to stay um, after Panic had packed up and moved on. Galactic was playing, I think, at the Boulder Theater. So we went and uh, hung out with the guy with those guys, and ended up that night. Uh, that manager that was managing Galactic at the time, he needed a ride, and I had a car. And he said, "Are you got a car?" I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, can you take me up to a friend's up in uh, Netherlands?" I was like, "Sure." So we take him up there in my little '94 Saturn, you know, that because struggling to get up the mountain, and uh, it turns out to be. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson's Illustrator's House. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, and and I didn't even, I was really green, uh, you know, around the gills and naive, and uh, they all knew it. Uh, Mandy had been out west many times before, been friends with the band, all those bands for years. Uh, and um, they kind of messed with me. I, they didn't even tell me until about daybreak when we were sitting out on the uh the porch watching the sunrise over the mountain and he said do you have any idea who i am and i said no sir i don't and he told me and i was so embarrassed of course but i don't you, you probably have heard of the panic magic if you have any panic friends and that's just one of the many many stories i've got of the panic magic that seems to just happen uh if you play your cards right <laughs> at the panic show rick have you uh you got any interactions with the band I met Todd uh, Nance at a local when, at a local place in Charlotte when he had a little side band there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very late, you know. And you know, we talked about people were you know rip Todd Nance, man. But uh, yeah, he was cool, man. He was a little. He, they played Division Light Theater there in Charlotte, and then uh, his band was there. But I never, not really any interactions. Um, never really in a position to do so. Uh, I, you know, just. You know, seen him up close a lot on stage, but never really, you know, personally met him or anything. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to break down till the medicine takes. And, and like I said, it came out in June of 1999. And uh, really a uh, um, groundbreaking album for them. Really helped take them to new heights. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about each song and uh, some just our thoughts on it. And, can, it, it, you know, the recording of it or what the lyrics mean to you or the live performances. Um, and so, um, that's what we're going to do. And so the opening song is surprise Valley, uh, surprise Valley. And, uh, to me, this song opens with one of the most quotable lyrics from a widespread panic song, kiss the mountain air we breathe. Uh, it's a top 10 widespread panic song for me, in my opinion. Um, I love it. I love everything about it. I like the kind of almost like carnival, like coda that it ends with, uh, just almost like a like something you would hear it playing in the background at like a county fair or something like that. So Rick, I'm going to throw it to you first. What are your thoughts on Surprise Valley? Well, uh, again, I hate ranking things, but in my opinion, it's a top five panic song. It's just the the whole vibe of that song, man. It's Dave Schools all the way, and he's a phenomenal bass player. And just the vibe of that song sets the tone for you. And, and it has... You know, not only that, but just that whole song has lended to incredible performances live uh, where they've expanded on that song and just just ripped it off. And they've let it in the Suzanne will tell you, they've let it in the drums several times. It's uh, just a wonderful track, man. A panic at 
absolute best right there. Um, he, I, I mean, I just love it. I mean, the whole vibe of that song is fantastic. All right, Sue Ann, you saw it the first time it was ever played live, correct? Yeah, and um, it's funny. There's no, another little story, and I, I don't think I'm getting anybody in trouble at this point. Uh, I won't name names, but uh, back in 99, it might even have been the end of 98, uh, I, my good friend, a good friend of mine, uh, said, you, you know what, I have uh, information, I have inside information about Panic, a new album coming out next year. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what, you know, tell me whatever you can. And she said, I have the demo. <laughs> so she had a copy of the demo that existed at that point. I'm not sure how she got it, but um, she apparently didn't keep it to herself because by the time they played that first song, and I'm not sure exactly when the band found out that the demo had been leaked, but that night when it was debuted on 62799, there was a whole section of people from Mississippi, from Ole Miss in specific, who were, well, the South, I guess you see, the, the, the South, uh, singing the song. And so, um, you know, there was a little bit of a, not rift at all, but a issue at first, I believe people worried that maybe that was a problem. But I, I know that it ended up being a promotional tool for the band. Looking back on it now, having been in the business of media uh, since, as much as I have being a journalist and doing just a little promo journalism for bands and things, I realize now, you know, sometimes things like that didn't even go down the way we thought maybe it was leaked on purpose and I that's totally possible I've never spoken with anybody about it since um because none of us ever wanted to get in trouble or be blamed in the whole situation so this is the first anybody's ever spoken of it I believe since since all of that happened um I'll tell you this I know that if it survives and anybody has a copy of it and you can get a hold of it it is not well it's not well done quality wise of course at least the copy I had was not, but some of the versions of the songs on the demo, in my opinion, are a lot better than the way they arranged them on the CD. And I wonder sometimes if they didn't change it up so much strictly because they might have known way before that, you know, way before they this, that summer that that, uh, that the demo had been leaked. Because I know it was around for at least four months, four or five, six probably months before I before um, I went to Red Rocks, um, at least it seems that way to me. It's a long time ago. Um, I, I do want to say uh, about Surprise Valley and the way they did arrange it on the album. Um, I love how the intro is plainly an orchestra tuning up um, just for a few bars at the very beginning. And then the song just goes directly full speed into the song as in a, in a um, building on, to a crescendo, basically to a peak right at the beginning of the song rather than uh, the tr a traditional structure of a song where you have a, a intro that's uh, just a, you know, four bar instrumental. Then you've got your verse one, then you've got your chorus one then verse two, you might have a bridge and you might have a pre-chorus, but it's usually pretty standard uh, uh, arrangement there. Uh, but here it's really hard for me to figure out, is it a pre-chorus that I'm hearing first? You know, that first verse, um, just a really well done, imaginative, smart song. 
especially in the sense of uh, bringing 50% jam band, well, I'll put it 50% widespread panic, what they had solidified as their sound already, and then 50%, I think, what they were trying to bring in with this album, like maybe quote-unquote what the kids were listening to at the time. Um, that was, of course, in the days of raves. We're getting, uh, they were kind of uh, dwindling out raves. It's more house, dance, that type uh, of music. But, um, yeah, it, it sets the album up really well, too. I love the refrain, I think I believe is the term you use, the spirit, it moves in all things. Um, that's a big theme of this album. Is I think this is the first concept album that Panic has ever, ever done. Um, I hear of it in the sense that spirituality, mysticism, from the album art to the lyrics to the sound effects, um, even to the song order and uh, the song themes, uh, giving Todd a song uh, that that was so... Uh, a ballad, you know, sweet and unexpected. It's a soulful album. And the Buddhist album art the, with the Buddhist uh, symbols, uh, such as like the band portrait, has the band uh, really in a in a pose very reminiscent of like a widespread panics version of The Last Supper. Um, and they're all, the auras are showing around them and they have the, the you know, there's a third eye symbol there, levitation of orbs and things. I mean, it's a very, uh, it's a very adventurous and imaginative album, not just musically, but conceptually and uh, artistically speaking. And uh, right down to the hologram they put on the front. Um, uh, just a really great piece of art. Yeah, it's probably their best album cover they've ever done. Rick, what do you, Rick, what do you think? Oh yeah, it's 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 got that hippie vibe to it for sure. Uh, you know, the '60s hippie vibe to it. You know, it's kind of kind of right in there with the one that they had that followed up after that. Don't tell the band kind of had that trippy little cover to it. So yeah, that's cool with it for sure. All right, it, it did. On that note, about one thing I wanted to mm -hmm. say about "Don't Tell the Band" real quick. Just uh, back going back to the to the demos incident. Uh, I've always wondered how much the the name of Don't Tell the Band has to do with the fact that the demo from the one before got out. <laughs> <laughs> that can, that's definitely a possibility. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So the second song is Bears Gone Fishing. And this is one of my favorite widespread panic songs. And I'm a big fan of ear candy, and especially ear candy and headphones. And this one delivers it in droves. Um, this song is just recorded so well. Um, I have in my notes here, sonically, it's just one big piece of ear candy. It's got that cool, just that cool opening. And Sue Ann alluded to maybe them adapting their sound a little bit to, to some things that were going on in the musical scene at that time. And this is definitely a great example about that. Now, Rick, before we get into like your thoughts on the song, do you know what the song is about? Uh, yeah. If we should discuss it. <laughs> uh, for the people that don't know, let's just say it's about a, uh, a roadie uh, getting along with a, uh, a lady dressed up as a mermaid and uh, maybe the band taking a peek or two. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, 
right, Rick. I did, uh, not, I did not know that. Yeah. All right, Rick. So, uh, like I said, it's one of my favorite Panic songs, and it's one of the songs that really just elevates this album for me. Before we get to Sue Ann, what are your thoughts on it? Well, it, it does. It's got that funky little vibe to it. And you're right. The ear candy and the headphones is great. You know, JoJo's swirling around with those keys and just, uh, it's just got that airy sound to it, man. A trippy hippie vibe with a funk bottom to it. Uh, again, you just cannot go wrong with anything. Dave schools is laying down on the base and he just rides that. And, uh, of course, <coughs> JB's in fantastic form as he always is. And, uh, you know, it's just that thing has a little, as you listen to that song, oh, you know, you kind of, it grows on you because the way they drop it in on the second track. And again, that also lended to some nice extensions in live performances as well, because it's kind of, that song kind of lends itself to taking off to it. So, yeah, I'm like you, that, uh, that's got a trippy vibe to it with that funk bottom to it. And of course the, uh, the, the lyrics once you know the background on the song you kind of you kind of uh, you know brings the song more into to to even a happier kind of you grin when you hear it all right sue ann what are your thoughts on it you know Eric, i've always loved this song I, I when i hear it i just think about glow sticks you know seeing panic fans with their glow sticks dancing that, that's usually a a pretty standard thing, at least in the South uh, or in the Northeast too, um, during this song. Uh, and it, you know, like I said, it's that techno and dance feel. Um, I also really love the lyrics in this one, the, the part where it says five versus five babies, a freak show. I really identified with that <laughs> when I was young and, uh, you know, it made me feel like, they were speaking to me, to the girls in the crowd who, you know, we might've been or felt like a freak show at times or, you know, um, it's always special when you feel like the, the song is, is speaking to you. Um, and that's something, you know, watch for panic really seems to, that's how it seems to grab people, uh, at the heartstrings that just it, certain songs speak to people. And, uh, that's one for me because I'm a dancer. I love to dance. I was a dance teacher and that's, that's one of my, throw down dancing songs it's a I, I usually rank my songs as a i would go to the bathroom or i wouldn't go to the bathroom during this song and i would not go to the bathroom during this song now, jb snapping jb winking to you on that song a little sense of humor with that baby's a <laughs> show right. now sue ann speaking of dancing now if i remember correctly didn't you uh didn't you lose a talent competition one time to somebody that kind of went on to be uh world famous well, you know, we have rethought that now. That might not have been true, so we we don't want to speak on speak their name because I can't verify it. <laughs> I can't because we're 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 starting to wonder if our memory might have been incorrect. But if we are right, it was a person from a boy band. I'll just give you that much. <laughs> I can't give you much more than that. Yeah, All right. I, I've seen. I've seen my life to have these scrapes with either semi-famous or famous people time and time again it really is just chance most of the time but yeah that david knows uh he's a hometown uh person uh you know we grew up together he knows that i from time to time i, I tend to, to uh to come into close contact with with stars i just have been real lucky the female version of Far- the- that time he, i wasn't lucky he beat me and ended up going to star search so the uh the female version of Forrest Gump. 
always <laughs> always counted around. All right, so song yeah, number, right. so right. song number always running. So song number three, uh, to me, the con to safety, the the out of the gate. This may be the best three song run the band ever had on an album. Uh, it's a Jerry Joseph song. The JoJo organ intro is one of the mo- easily one of the most recognizable intros to any widespread Panic song. Whenever they kick into that in concert, place just goes nuts. Always a crowd pleaser. Um, I love the melody of the course. Um, to me, from a vocal standpoint, this is easily some of um, JB's best vocals that have ever been recorded uh, in the studio. So, Sue Ann, Climb to Safety, song number three. What are your thoughts on it? You know, I, I have to be honest. When I first heard it played, let's see, did I write first time played? I didn't write that one on this. But I... I, I I, I think that what I heard in it, the first time I heard it played and I was not impressed, was the fact I could hear, I could tell that was not a song of theirs. Um, over time, it, that changed for me when I realized that the message of the song was so important and I saw how important it was for us to hear it. <laughs> it you know, over time, that becomes evident when you're in any kind of a, of a rock and roll scene, you know, and young especially. Um, and it's one now that I want to jump right in and stay and, you know, cheer for the home team. Like we're at an Ole Miss football game, you know, um, I, I got, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jerry Joseph once at Proud Larry's. Uh, and I have to say he's one of the nicest guys. Uh, he gets a bad rap. A lot of people say Jerry is rude or whatever. No, Jerry, Jerry Joseph is quite a, a gentleman, I have to say, and a genius on top of that. And he also does so much humanitarian work for uh, children in the Middle East, if I'm not mistaken. It's yeah, been a few years right. since then. Yeah, uh, just like, and I'm not I'm not talking about just going and, and building clean water wells. I'm talking about getting in there and and risking his life to implement change, you know, but get some such some uh, infrastructure, things like that, just supplies. Uh, uh, I wish I could remember the specifics, but um, anyway, I, I've come to love all of Jerry's songs, Jerry Joseph's songs that Panic does. They do, let's say they do North, they do this one. Are those the only two? Um, I, I believe I so. Yeah, North I think... Yeah, yeah I think they are. Jerry wrote, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet again, that's a good example of Panic bringing in, uh, bringing fans to be exposed to music that's so much less well-known in the South. Um, you know, up-and-coming artists, uh, not just up-and-coming artists like Jerry, but also, and especially for me, what was so good for me in, in my life, musically speaking, for me to learn about good music was being exposed to J.J. Kale, Traffic, like you said. Uh, I'd always loved Steve Winwood, uh, David, but all I really knew about him was some of his work with the with the that first band he was in Spencer in Davis England. Group. That's right. My mom had one of those records, and then the stuff he did in the '80s, which I loved. We all did, and uh, so when I I got into Traffic um, because of Panic, it just that's a whole different area, you know, of, of Winwood's work. And I could go on and on and on. Uh, Warren Zevon, 
um, you know, uh, blood kin. There's so many, and I'm so grateful for that. All right, Rick, what are your thoughts on climb to safety? Well, just a catchy, just a catchy griff rhythm. You know, it's one of those songs where when you hear it a couple times, you just start singing it to yourself. And, you know, it's always what I've ever seen it live. It's been just kind of a a short, you know, they didn't expand on it, but they drop it in and everybody just starts moving when you hear it. And, you know, the lyrics, it's a song of uh, whatever you want to tie it into redemption or whatever. But it's just, man, JB just rips that song and, and, and that rhythm in there. They just ride that groove. It is a is a killer tune, and I know that Jerry wrote it. But as Panic does a lot of times, they can take somebody else's song and damn make it better. And you know, I, it's just one of them songs that I never turn off when I hear it. I never skip past it. I agree with you on that three song run. Um, man, I've seen Climb to Safety several times live. Heck, the first time I saw heard the song was the second show of the '99 year. It was in uh, Salem, Virginia. And, uh, and and they they sprung that on the second the second song of the first set and I had not heard it and I just was like oh, this is great you know I'm sitting like 10, 10 rows off the I'm right there on the floor man and uh, I don't know man it's that that song and again they don't do singles but if Panic was going to take a single from an album if they cared to which they didn't. That would have been one I would have put out as a single because it seemed to me to be a radio-friendly type of song, had a catchy melody to it. Mm-hmm. And if they really wanted to push that, I think they could have played it in some of the local stations in Charlotte area that did play a couple of their tunes before radio became more, you know, you play this and you can't play anything else. But uh, I really, really like that song. And it's a killer song. And again, you just, JB just nails it. You know, his lyrics are so, the lyrics are heartfelt. The way he sings it, man, he's at the top of his toes and eyes shut when he's singing those choruses. And, uh, man, you just can't, I mean, climb to safety, the rhythm in there. I, heck, I'm sitting here playing air, playing the air bass to it as we <laughs> talk about it, you know, because do, 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 you know, that whole groove in there. Everybody just gets moving on that thing. And it's, that that's the song that I think they could have, that could have been a radio song for them. Um, that's how I feel about that one, man. All right. I, I have to agree. Go ahead. I have to. I have to agree on that. You know, I remember when Bonds and Butterflies came out in '97. They were really pushing Radio Child and and then Avis, and that was great. I I liked those songs, but but for me, I, I've I've never been happy. First of all, with I've never well. It just seemed to me like and Avis was a odd song to choose to really go all out on and I I wonder sometimes if that's because Vic wrote it and maybe they were trying to help Vic in the sense that you know like Clapton helped uh helped um JJ Kale by recording his songs um and other people did too to to help him make money you know they think they needed it and Vic was such a a wonderful songwriter and but with his handicap, it, it held him back some. And, of course, his, uh, he was a paraplegic. He'd been in an accident at the age of 18 and, and was completely um, uh, paralyzed from the neck down. But he, he really got around well. He had a, a, a remote, a little uh, 
uh, control where he can move his hand a little bit and he moved his automatic chair. But, you know, I know it was hard for Vic to survive. And I feel like Panic probably chose that single that time to help forward um, with Vic's. Hey, Sue Ann. Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, while we're talking about that bombs and butterfly and, and airplane, when I was in living in around Charlotte, uh, the local Fox station was playing Hope in a Hopeless World uh, for a while there on the air, along with Can't Get High off of uh, um, Ain't Life Yeah, Grand. that's right. I, I do remember. You're right. Hope in a Hopeless World was was the panic one that they really pushed. Of course, you know, th that one did not get a video, though, correct? But, no. And it just was the, you're right, right. And Billy Bob um, Thornton directed I, that, didn't he? Yes, yes, that was his uh, the the his the, the the woman in there. That's his. Uh, don't want to say his niece. Of uh, Laura Dern. Or, yeah, that's his Laura, niece. I, I you know I don't I may be wrong, but I thought that Laura was dating Billy Bob at the time. Or maybe that's what the connection is. Maybe I'm I'm sorry. I think so, and I think Laura had all. I think she and Billy Bob had known each other for a long time, uh, and Billy Bob's been associated with panic for a while too because of vic um vic chestnut was in uh you know the movie sling blade that yeah. uh yeah and vic vic is in that scene uh where the man in the wheelchair gets thrown up against the wall um that's Vic. i didn't know that mm -hmm. huh. all right so song number four is blue indian and uh to me this is one of only a few missteps on this um album i know that may not be popular no. with some people um oh, no. i don't like a lot of these jb style like vaudeville slash troubadour type songs um i do like the chorus on this i think the chorus on this is great but uh i feel like he gets one of these on on a lot of albums and uh i'm just not that big of a fan of it and sue ann i heard you gasp so tell me where i'm wrong yeah well for me i guess it Lyrically speaking, you know, the words, the verses, especially the chorus, um, or maybe the bridge might be what you call it, where he says, we got a party going on, many spirits strong. You know, that whole, that whole is so, it's so powerful. Um, you know, ain't no preacher, just a happy to meet you. You know, the message is so good. And the way that the tick-tock rhythm, the cadence of the song, it, it reflects so well the laid-back style of the band, the message that they're trying to send about these Indians, this, this symbolic, uh, this you know, Indian with a feather symbols that you're hearing them describe. You know, it paints a beautiful picture for me, and maybe it's a made-up-in-my-mind picture of the American Indian, but, of course, that's all I can do. And as, like, where David and I grew up, is a huge Choctaw settlement. It was at one time. And of course they were moved off in the early 1800s, but I've always felt guilty, I guess you might say, but not just not, it's really a more of a, an, uh, a connection to the Choctaw Indians that lived where our farm is on the Tallahatchie river in Tallahatchie County. And, uh, so this song really spoke to me and I love the musical uh, composition. I think it fits, like I said, the theme so well. And I, I had to even look this up. It's a musical term called music painting. 
And this is a technique where you, it would be as if like when you uh, play dun, 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 in a song about Chinese people, you're creating uh, a sound or using a device that it mimics the theme. And uh, that is done well in this song too. Even though we, we have, you know, the American Indians would have never been listening to a song like this or they probably would have been afraid of it if they heard it, but it gives you that, well, I, I see like a modern day Indian, some of the, you know, the descendants. Also, another reason it's so important to me, I uh, at a really, really close friend of mine's wake a, a few years ago, I sang this song. My friend Andy had passed away and he was from the Delta, just such a special man and a big panic fan. He was, he, he took me to my second Watch for Panic show in New Orleans. Um, and my friend Philip played guitar uh, while I sang it at the wake, and it was totally impromptu. We didn't plan it, but we had decided we were hanging out at his, we were having his wake at his uh, camp house, his hunting house. That's where he would have wanted it. And um, we thought, well, we better play some music, you know, for him. And, and we thought, well, of course, we'll play some Panic. And it was, it is, even as upset as I was, I did so well. Uh, at that time, I wasn't a big singer. I, I am in a little band now, but it's just a spe the end of Brave, Brave Friends, that refrain, when he, he repeats that phrase, again, it, like it's a song that speaks to me. It speaks to us as the Panic fans, the family, the home team. You know, we're the Brave Friends. Um, now, I don't know if that's what it was intended when they wrote it, and I know it's definitely a... a a nod at brave being uh, a pun for, you know, a brave Indian brave as well. But at the same time, it is kind of brave to be striking out and going all over the nation <laughs> like we did when we were young. We are the brave friends. <laughs> all right, Rick, what are your thoughts on it? Well, again, uh, and I hate that you think that on this one, but this is thematically, this goes right with the album. She's absolutely correct when she says, painting a picture with music, uh, the little swing vibe in there that JB is so fantastic vocals on this. He paints the picture. It, it, it's just a unique little song. And I, I may be way offline here, but in, maybe this is a little Beatles coming out in, in their style here. Like to put a song like this on the album with the way that that sounds and the story it's just it, it's a very studio-ish type of song and and they've played it live before but this seems to work so much better in the studio than it does not that it's not good live but it's an acoustic song better live but it just you know it's got the title of the album in it <laughs> so it just it's it's just the placement of the song it just sets the this album back to what we were saying about the variety of music on here and and Boy, the words, uh, it's it, its a good sing-along song. And I just love JV's, JV's vocals in this song. He, he's in top form, as he is on the whole album. But just the whole vibe of this song, and she couldn't have said it better when she said, this song, Airbrush, just paints a picture of the theme of this album. And when you look at the album cover, the whole production of it, wraps around this song and, and it's a simple song but but a nifty little song and uh i don't know man it's uh you know never going to be a favorite of mine 
but I just this this song just kind of settles this album in where where it is where it is what we think of it. Right, I, 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 I knew I was be, I knew I would be I'm, in the minority. I, I, I wanted to speak to uh, Rick when you uh, made the reference to the Beatles. I immediately heard the little guitar riff in me in Michelle. Um, it's yes. in the same key, and and there's a few notes that are the same in in the uh, guitar solos. So that's a good nod to the Beatles and a good call because I hear it too. I, well, and I always oh, wonder yeah. when I hear bands do that, and I make that connection in my mind. I wonder to myself, well, did, they, did they know at the time that that was that close? You know. Yeah, you know, Paul McCartney did a lot of that. You know, he had a unique style the white album and some of that stuff where they had that real British uh, swing thing. It, I don't know what I'm look, saying, trying to say, but yeah. just when I, when I hear that song blue Indian, I think of some of the studio work of the Beatles, I'm not trying to compare them. I'm just saying it, it's something that it references to me that would be just Beatles. That's all. I, I don't know what I mean by that. It just pops in my head. Yes, and actually I wanted to, uh, like I had said before about this being like a concept album to me, and I think that's, you know, where you're going with it too, about it being such a, um, all of the songs, they have the same message, even if the song styles are completely different. Um, but there's a there's such a Beatles feel in the sense that all of these songs tie back to this song. You know, there's a story being told. It is a concept album. It is a progressive rock album. Okay. All right, so track number five, uh, we get our Mikey song. Um, one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most beloved songs in the whole catalog, uh, The Waker. And um, Rick, it, it's kind of embarrassing that we're on song number five here and Michael Hauser's has, name has not come up yet, uh, which is kind of, well, that's that's bad for us. What what? Uh, it's a top ten panic song for me. I don't really have anything other to say that. I love everything about it. What are your thoughts on it? Well, buddy, I mean, you know, Mikey is will forever be missed, man. And, and we haven't even broke down the band members up, probably another show. But, uh, you know, being a father of two, and this song came out, and my firstborn was only two years old, uh, you could hear Mikey. Uh, it's just a sweet song. I think it, I think it sums up Mikey so much, just his, his delicate way, his his vibe, his innocence. Uh, again, I, I think, again, this is another thematic type of song where it's light-hearted. It's very, I guess I'm saying airy. You've got the mandolin in the background. It's It's got a little country vibe to it, but it just goes with the theme of the album again. And, uh, you know, Mikey never was the best singer, and he would probably tell you that, and I think the band would, but what made Mikey unique was when JB sang with him. Uh, if you look at a lot of Mike's songs and a lot of times you'll hear JB come in with him and, and you just hear it again. And, and, and boy, this is a sweet song, man. And, and, you know, it's not been played much live. I think they've done it a couple times over the last five, six, seven, eight years. Um, I think it's a hard one for them to play as a couple others are. And I think any panic fan, so I would attest to this. I think any of us loving the band that we have, or we love this band. When you hear this song, you cannot help but smile and think about Mikey sitting in that chair playing that guitar. And uh, 
I just think it captured a personality there that we all knew, but it was there on record, and it's a timeless song, and it's a sweet song. That's all I can say. Sue Ann? Yeah, I, I have to admit, <clears throat> the first time I ever heard this, I believe I was at the debut. I'm trying to find it. Let's see. 10798. Is that? Yeah. If that was New World. Well, I, I won the first few times i know um either the first second or third time they ever played that i was there and i was just kind of bewildered i couldn't really the sound was bad at that venue where i was standing anyway and uh i couldn't really hear what he was saying and uh it might have been oak mountain but anyway it just had to grow on me once i could understand once i got bootleg of that of the show shortly thereafter and it was a soundboard i, I could hear what he was saying and it it started growing me immediately I, I heard the theme of the album in there the buddhist things especially at the end when he says there's nothing new feeling i'm free i've just begun uh, love's always new uh, and the simple you know having known that having been told that his son's name was waker so it's obviously about his son, and uh, again, there's the musical painting because the the, the sound, uh, the musical sound of the song, the style, um, and the, the tone, the structure, even right down to the simplicity of the words, is childlike and lighthearted and so positive and, and sunny and just, you know, innocent and uh it's interesting how they take a song that sounds with if you if you don't read the words and if you didn't know what the words were saying, you would think, now why in the world is this song on this album? But knowing the backstory, it makes perfect sense. One thing I've always wondered about this album is why Mikey only really had one song featured. And I've often wondered if it was because maybe he was you know that you know he might have been sicker sick longer uh maybe affected um earlier than we knew uh being sick it's kind of a sad place to leave it but you know those are my thoughts on it yeah i absolutely just love this song and like the version on the oak mountain those oak mountain shows is just great the you know it always gets a big response to the line you know i'm higher than you'll ever be um mm -hmm. just always always love that song very special song for me all right, so we get to song number six, and Panic's never been one to shy away from an instrumental, whether it was uh, the takeout or disco or the letter-on-letter uh, -letter songs, as I like to call them. Um, Party at your mama's house. Um, I think it's I think this serves its purpose, and it, it kind of like Sue Ann has mentioned a couple of times, it, it, it takes a, a few nods from stuff that's going on in the music industry at the time. Um, Sue Ann, what are your thoughts on it? Um, I, I, every time I hear this song, I think about the version that was on the demo and how much I loved it and how much I wish I still had it and how much I love hearing this live at venues that are outside when, when it's warm or hot and you've been dancing and you're sweating and you're so hot. And then they play this song and it's like you just get a rest. You know, the wind, I can just... I can just close my eyes and be right there at Red Rocks and just feel that wind blowing on me and, you know, just cooling you down. Panic has a good way of building up their fans and then, you know, taking them down easy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, 
through kind of a roller coaster and that that for me it's always kind of like a wind down song but right before they wind it back up rick what are your thoughts on it well i i, I don't you know again this this instrumental you know the acoustics in it this this really paints their southern style right here i mean this this jumps out to me of their southern heritage and background and just you know you, it invokes allman brothers at times in there it's a sweet little instrumental uh, it has lended itself to fantastic live performances, how they've expanded out of that, segueing into other songs. So it's a great placement in the album, too. It really is. Uh, in the middle of the album, you get a, a, an instrumental like this. And, and just uh, it shows you just how tight of a band they are when they play this song live. And then another one, too, Dave, if you've got headphones on, you know, you, this is a good one, too. Um, just uh, the acoustics wrapped over and Mikey is fantastic I think uh, John King the official 7th member of the band I think he is playing pedal steel in this too I, I, I believe he plays he on is. several that's right and, uh, and you know live when they do it live John JB takes the slide on this one and plays it usually which is pretty cool because you know they don't always come out with that so uh, you know even back when when this was being, when Mikey was around and even today with Jimmy, uh, JB still plays the slide. So uh, great instrumental, sweet. I mean, it's, a, it's just a cool song to, like you said, it's just a laid back song. You can sit on the deck and listen to this one. And by, by the end of the song, you're kind of up tapping your toe a little bit. It's uh it's a great one to just, uh, you know, feel the breeze and jam to it's a, it's a sweet old Southern instrumental. All right. So the next song on the album is uh, one that uh, really speaks to what we've talked about, how they were kind of adapting their sound a little bit to what was going on in the music world, and that is Dying Man. Now, at the time, a couple years before this, there was a band in the southeast by the name of Big Ass Truck, which is like one of my top five band names of all time. They were uh, they were kind of building a little bit of a cult following, and uh, they had a guy named Colin that was in the band. I forget his last name, but they incorporated... Uh, uh, DJs into the mix and scratching and, and you know uh, making effects with turntables and so um, I'm sure their paths crossed many times on the concert circuit and they uh, they had him contribute to this song and uh, really one of the more unique songs in the in the widespread panic catalog uh, and like I said that the DJing and stuff really adds a lot to this song I think the song would have been good without any of that but to me it elevates it from you know a really good song to a great song um the lyrics to it are are, are really kind of tongue-in-cheek and uh, kind of interesting to say the least but a very very groove heavy tune one of the most groove heavy tunes in the catalog uh sue ann what are your thoughts on it well i when i heard it on the demo I didn't like it. There was a lot more scratching on the demo version, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I was so shocked. Uh, I wasn't expecting the turntable scratch thing. Uh, I had heard it done. I'm wanting to say that they had debuted this song before that at Mud Island with Colin Butler, right? Or maybe it was DJ Logic. That would be that would make sense because that's where a big ass truck was from. Colin Butler. Yeah, I'm wanting to say. Let me find Colin my Butler. notes about when that was. Okay, first time played for One Arm Steve is 4 So that would have been about a year 
in three months before the album came out. So it just, it, it didn't sound like a JoJo song to me. Um, I don't enjoy the, and that's this, I sound like I'm ripping it apart, but I'm just critiquing it as a musician because uh, I play piano. I don't enjoy the uh, organ chord structure. It's not, the, it's not the sound or the structure as much as it is the percussive part of it, the element that's much more of like drums, um, the choppy nature also of it. I, in my opinion, this song would have been a lot better done with JoJo singing it, but taking the scratching out, slowing it down to a ballad, and instead of him playing hard chords on a, on an organ, it's, I believe it should have been a piano ballad just done straight out and slowed down because the message is pretty serious of the song, um, if I am taking it correctly. And that, that was all, that's just always the way it is. It's one of my bathroom songs, I have to say. Even though I'm a huge JoJo fan, um, and it's a JoJo song, it's one of my bathroom songs. All right, Rick, your thoughts? Well, yeah, um, definitely JoJo. We're getting into a couple of JoJo-influenced heavy songs here. So, you know, I think, again, it's, it's an okay song. Uh, it's in the middle of the record. Uh, you know, I, I don't fast-forward through many Panic songs, but I – I, I like the song. Uh, I like when JB comes in with JoJo and they sing together. You know, they've got that little, their typical little growl going on and, and they're having a good time with this song and, and the scratching on there just fits it. And I've heard it live before and without the scratching. And it's, you know, it's got a nice heavy funk to it, but it's just a nice little groove tune. Typical, yeah, it's, it's got JoJo written all over it. And um, this is a nice little dance song. Some people like it, some people don't. I can take it or leave it. I think uh, I think if we go through any album from any artist, we may find a few songs we can take or leave. So, solid song, just a good little dance group, and uh, yeah, that's really all I got to say about that one. All right. So to me, when I got this record or CD when it came out, and obviously JoJo usually gets a song or two on on albums, and obviously JB does the bulk, and uh, Mikey gets one every now and then. Um, when I got to You'll Be Fine, I was like, that's not Mikey, that's not JB, <laughs> that's not uh, JoJo, who is this singing? And uh, it was Todd Nance, and to my knowledge, this is the first time Todd Nance sang lead on a uh, Widespread Panic song. Um, I have always been just very partial to this song. I 
obviously Todd is not a quote unquote singer uh, in the vein of, of other people in the band, but he conveys like such emotion and vulnerability with this with this the lyrics on this and the way he sings it. Um and the the backup singing on the chorus from JB just this little light sound of JB singing in the background. It just gives me chills every time I hear it. And obviously, you know, Todd Nance recently passed and that makes this even a little bit more hard to listen to. Um, but uh, it was cool of them to give a nod to Todd and let him do this. And I think it's one of the, the all-time great like surprise songs by them. Sue Ann, what are your thoughts? I agree. Um, I, like you, was so shocked. Um, the, it's uh, My stats say, well, Everyday Companion says the first time it was played was 91597. And I know that I must have had either that show or, or let's see, the next time was 421. No, that's on down. I was I was trying to compare uh, when Down was first debuted as opposed to You'll Be Fine. Down was debuted on 416-2000, so a full three years on, you know, almost since uh, You'll Be Fine. Especially Down used to be my favorite before the last two months, I guess. Um, but... Now, after Todd passing and all this COVID stuff, the stress in the world, you know, the, the craziness in the world, um, David, when you gave me this assignment about a month ago or so to be on your show, I was so excited and um, it gave me a chance to revisit this album and I'm so grateful for it. And this was a song that I've gone back to over and over because I didn't appreciate it the way I do now when I was young. I had not been through enough to feel like I wasn't fine yet. And um, this is a song that, yet again, they're speaking. It, it's, it speaks to me um, right down to the fact that, you know, Todd, especially when he began, when he first started singing uh, songs in concert live, it wasn't that great. It wasn't good. Um, sometimes, it, sometimes it was not good at all. He got better and better over time, and it showed, you know, and he just even that in itself, him being so brave to do that, to put his neck out on the line, just to be able to tell us what he needs to say. Um, it means so much, and uh, I just wanted to say one thing. You know, we were talking earlier, I don't know if we were recording yet, but we were talking about all the people in the music industry so many greats have been lost here in the last few years that it's, it's starting to be disconcerting, you know, wondering, you know, what's happening to everyone. Well, number one, I, you know, I feel like we might have to look at it in the historical context. The fact that, you know, rock and roll, the birth of rock and roll was around the, the 40s, the 50s, 60s. It really hit big. And those are the people that are the icons, the legends. And it's, you know, this is just the natural part of life. If you're born, you're going to go. We all know. And I think that society these days, you know, with our obsession with living forever and being young forever, uh, we, it, and also in this advanced age of technology where we can stay alive so much longer, we forget about the fact that we're not supposed to stay here forever. People go when it's time. And, you know, like everybody else, I was real upset uh, at first. At first, when I heard that Todd had passed, because of course I thought, oh my God, young, you know, so young. And 
Uh, but I had a piece come over me very shortly after because I just had the feeling he, he's, you know, Todd's fine. Todd's okay. Uh, he's definitely in good company. He definitely has friends there. And like I said, we all, I, I, I and the one, the kind of person who believes, you know, everything's written in the book of life before we get here, you know, that, that day is known already and we can't question that day. So I just want to say to any parent fans out there, you know, that are having a hard time dealing with the losses this year, you know, Neil saw that was so tragic. Um, that death is but a door. I'll put it that way. Death is but a door no matter what the circumstances and they really don't even matter. What matters is how you live, not how you die. Well, so you said you thought that at first you didn't like his voice in concert. I, I didn't at all. And I, I, um, didn't take into account the fact he was extremely nervous. I don't believe I had, I know I had not met him yet when I had heard either heard the bootleg or was at a show where he played, where he sang uh, in front of me for the first time. But um, it, it grew on me to where it became one of my favorite things when he would very out of the, he didn't seem you'll be fine very many times. I'm wondering about the stats on that as opposed to down. It seems to me, at least from the shows that I saw live, I saw down a lot more times than you'll be fine. Um, I think Down was an easier song for him to sing uh, as far as the melody uh, mm -hmm. for his voice. You'll Be Fine is a more uh, challenging voice, the vocal song. Um, and he, he definitely, there was an arc, a huge arc, where Todd's confidence started to show and he could really carry the tune that he was trying to, to carry. And I do have to say in his defense, one of the many things I never thought of at that time when I was so young and making all those decisions about judgments, about things that I really didn't know much about. I didn't take into account the fact that I'm sure Todd had a really hard time hearing himself over his own drums. And also on top of that, so many drummers already have so much hearing loss. Right. You know, there's only so much an in-ear monitor can do. And if you're singing, you know, in a show setting like that, I can't even imagine how hard it must be for a drummer to be a vocalist. Well, see, I, one of the things I always appreciated about his contributions vocally is he, you know, he doesn't sing that much. And he's not, so you know those songs that he writes and, and sings on probably really mean something to him. And it's, it's much like Rich Robinson of the Black Crows. Rich isn't, nobody's ever going to, you know, confuse rich robinson with paul rogers or anything like that but he has a certain vulnerability and tenderness with his vo both of them with their voices that it just conveys to me a lot of emotion and i that's one of the things i, I really like was when you can when you can convey emotion you know and and really make the person feel and i think he does a good job on that rick what are your thoughts on it yeah uh you know i got to see todd he had a little side band there and i can't even remember what the name it was but i know they played around the charlotte area a couple of times and i went so i'd heard todd sing before uh that that didn't surprise me uh but this is a really nice little subtle song you know i think it's a simple song but when you when you listen to it 
the melody JB coming again over top. I think this just, as there's a couple other songs on here, but this just shows you the completeness of this band, the egoless trip that they always have been on to let a guy have his day on this album. And, and, and you know, just beautifully done. It's, it's just a sweet little song, man. It's got a great melody. It's got a lot of meaning, however you want to interpret it. You know, to, and but but again, I think the song fits in with the theme again. And uh, again, this whole album, what made it so unique, it just tied together with the the writing of the songs, the message. Um, you know, just uh, almost you can hear it again and again. So, you know, I, I really like the acoustics and I just like the the melody in it and. Again, I just love how JB comes in and carries the melodies with his voice as he did with Mike a lot. I just think it made them unique, uh, signature-wise. But no, when I when I heard, I remember hearing this song for the first time, and it didn't surprise me that Todd got a song on there. But I had heard his voice before, so great little tune. And I know it's another album, maybe for another time. But Down yeah, has know, always been a, Down has always been a, a, a fantastic song. And another one too, where like the melody and you'll be fine, and the melody and down, you can you can you can find yourself singing that song after you hear it. It's really you know it's really strange. Like it'll kind of stay in your head, you know. And and when I went back, Dave, and I re-listened to this album again, prepping for what we're going to do here, I, I stopped on that song again and I, I paused. And I said, you know, as soon as I heard it again, hell, I think I started the melody in my head for two days. So. Uh, again, just a, just a sweet little song. Again, like the Waker, dropped in here in in, in this album the, to tie this album together. And it's I'm so happy the band uh, allows others to to showcase their talents vocally or whatever they need to be. Oh, I was I was gonna add, add too when you said egoless, Rick. <clears throat> it made me realize that this is really the first song of their own on a studio album that they released that is of its own nature. It's a ballad. It's really bearing all emotionally and reaching out, uh, expressing your feelings. Uh, whereas in my opinion, the originals that panic had done it to this point, especially all the ones on every day and space Wrangler were really pretty throw down hardcore rock and roll. You know, the lyric, right down to the lyrics, the lyrics were easy chair with my boots on, you know, melted whiskey in my hand. It's there's a definite masculine feel. There's a definite hardcore rock and roll feel. Um, not an emotion would definitely be there, but more of a, you know, a, it was more of a vibe. Yes, yes. Whereas this is a message. And I thought, um, yet again, bring it, this album is unto itself in all of the albums uh, as a whole in that sense is that it seems to be a message uh, of caring. Um, I think, and it kind of makes sense, I'm sure at this point in their career, they were really starting to see the negative things that can come from a quote-unquote on-the-road life um, for the fans. And I think they wanted to send a message to them that they see it and that they want to help them. A little bit as much as they can, you know, other just with their music, and that's their, that's what they do so well. And yet again, it's a perfect example of of them coming up with something totally unexpected and extremely risky, 
especially on, on Todd's part, knowing he was committing to playing those live uh, and having to decide with everybody whether or not he felt like singing it. You know, it's yeah. great. I think with widespread panic fans and general hardcore fans, I think they could go out there and, and bang on a piece of wood and they think it's a good tune. I mean, I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just, I think fans, panic fans are very receptive to anything they would did or try to do. Um, and they always found a way to find good in it and never really bad mouth it. Except when, except when it was uh, George McConnell. Oh, uh, well, now you know we can't talk about George. I'm not no, saying I'm not saying anything negative about him. I like the guy. He's a George, he helps. George, out. He helps yeah, out. George George McConnell. He's a good he's a good friend, and I've known him for 20 years now. <clears throat> he's one, and you know I have no idea what happened. Uh, I, I think he did a great job in the band. The shows I went to were excellent. Austin at the backyard. You know, I just he did he did the best he could and. And like David said, he's one of the nicest people you ever meet in your life. He, oh, he, he, he was out definitely the he, while he was in rock and roll in the scene, uh, he was definitely the the nicest, most well mannered man, gentleman in in rock and roll. I promise you that. Look, you and never he he helped out. You, now he's still rock and rolling, but he's doing it the way he likes to private, you know, in little side bands in Oxford, doing his own thing. He, George never was wanting the spotlight, I, I don't think. You never want to be the guy that replaces the guy. Isn't uh, that the you, truth? You, you know, Especially the guy he had to replace, right? Right. I mean, you you didn't want to be shortstop for the Yankees the, the season after Derek Jeter retired. You don't want to replace, you know, uh, I don't know. You don't want to replace have to replace Peyton Manning. He was in a an absolutely no-win situation with that because – I mean, I know he was handpicked, you know, and, and, and that should have given him a lot of grace with a lot of people. I was just bringing it up that that's the one time that, like, the, the fan base just seemed to really, I don't know, not rebel, but just kind of show their disapproval. Because, you know, like you're saying, on this album, they, they really kind of spread their wings a lot and, uh, you know, changed their sound up a little bit. But, um, yeah, I always felt really bad for him. I, he used to have a guitar shop. I bought a guitar from him years ago, and uh, just he's just a super nice guy. And uh, you never hear anybody on a personal level say anything negative about him. And a completely different, and a completely different type of guitarist too. I mean, I think you know George was a, a blues bass, uh, honky tonk rock player, and, and Mikey had a different sound. And I think that's why it was so important. They wanted Jimmy. Because Jimmy can play the signature lines. Jimmy's an unbelievable guitar player. And Jimmy could expand the band, I think. And, and George he helped out so much. But I think even on some of that stuff, John Keane had to help out. It just it just couldn't expand us playing to 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 panics what they've already what they already their sound they already have, what their expectations were, what they wanted to do from a live standpoint a lot of times. And that's not a slight on George at all. I don't know him, but I was listening to him when he played and, and, and he helped out tremendously, but you could tell that they, they, they couldn't be widespread panic again without being able to stretch things out and stuff. And that's for another conversation that has nothing to do with till the medicine takes. And I'm sorry we got off on that term. No, that's fine. Actually, Actually, that's all right. I, I was hoping this would come up because, you know, I'm sure we're all aware. Anybody that knows anything about panic, you know, at least, a, you know, a, about 20 percent of, of things, you know, 
you, it, you always hear about the George debate. Um, in, in my opinion, well, I, what I know for a fact is that he just wanted to be a fill-in and never make any kind of a career out of it or didn't, from what I understand, and this is not from the horse's mouth in any way, shape, or form, because I would never bring any of this up to any of them because it's none of my business. But as a fan speaking, you know, and also a critic's point of view, um, I, I feel like George's performance with the band suffered over time because he was kind of struggling to get out. Um, and they really desperately wanted him to stay and stick it out and try to make Ball, I think it was, the next album that they made with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, yeah, and ball, ball. get it done and then see how it would work out. And uh, it just kind of, it just kind of didn't work out. And mainly because, uh, not for any other reason than, than George was not at a point in his life where he wanted to be on the road like he had been his whole life, you know, playing in a band. He wanted to settle down with his wife that he's been with for goodness gracious, you know, since college and uh, live the family life and take it easy. And uh, and from what I had been told, he, you know, by people that think they know, you know, you hear things, whatever, that he had told him from the beginning, just wasn't going to stay. Um, so, the way I've always looked at it, I, I really, some I used to get very upset when people would just really dog him about his ability to play guitar, um, because he was doing so many people a favor just being up there oh, at yeah. all. I know that JoJo had mentioned many times when he was interviewed after Georgia joined the band about you know why they picked George, JoJo, and and everybody agreed it was because JoJo and George had that connection like JB and Mikey did and so you know hoping to recreate that that uh vibe with each other you know the brother type vibe the family vibe and it showed for the first part and I'm not I don't even recall how long George was in the band playing live but the first shows I saw especially Panic at the Backyard in Austin and there's a there's a DVD of that you know it's provable George did wonderful jobs at the shows that he practiced for and wanted to do wonderful jobs at. But to tell you the truth, George is just, I think at this point, what was going on when he might have had a bad show was because honestly he was tired and he didn't give a damn that day. You know, (laughs) in the bands that George had always been in, to a certain extent he could do that sometimes, at least for part of the show, because they were smaller venues. Um, He also... In, in a lot of the bands George was, was in, there was not just two, but maybe three or four different singers in the bands where they could take, you know, not get so worn out singing. Um, so I think there's a lot of different aspects to the situation that most people don't ever touch on or think about. Uh, all that ever gets discussed is his ability. And and that to, and I've watched him play for and perform for 20 years, and I know his ability. That's not the problem. It was way more a matter of, not wanting to do it at all. <laughs> very, very interesting insight, Miss Strider. <laughs> that, that's just, that's my take on it. That's what I'm going to say. My friends and I have discussed it, and this is our take on it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, as we as we round kind of the curve to, down the home stretch of the album, uh, one of the uh, all-time JoJo Herman classics, One Arm Steve, 
for, for a lot of people, this is their uh, their favorite uh, JoJo song. Um, it's one of uh, let's see. I guess he got he got three nods on this album. Um, it's kind of the first verse, at least whatever is about him showing up for his first gig with widespread panic and the guard not letting him in and telling him his face wasn't on the flyer. Um, just classic JoJo. Um, Rick, I love this song. I, I, I would think you probably do as well. It's widespread panic. You know, uh, JoJo's humor, his style, the lyrically speaking, if the, this, this thing's all over the place. I mean, the first set is about the, the about, you know, one Steve getting into that show and then the rest of it's just JoJo tying in images and just, you know, making phrases and, and, and things that to fit in with the song. But the cool thing about this song is, and I've seen it live several times, is this is another one where it's a short song, but they seem to rip this tail end off live. They would they would uh, take this one out a little bit, and sometimes it lended into some really good jams and got the crowd moving. And it's just a, you know, it, it's it's JoJo up and down, and, and again, it, it just ties in with widespread panic. I mean, it's just a straight up little jam band tune with. Uh, that that lends itself to some really killer live uh, live versions, and uh, it gets everybody moving, and uh, everybody moving but me, right? But it, it just uh, it just I don't know, man. This is a cool one. Yes, I like it, and I can snap my hat backwards on this one and take off down the road and sing along, and just a good old just a good old party song, man. Sue Ann. Yeah, I'm actually, I was going back to Everyday Companion. I'm trying to find the set list for a show that JoJo did at Ole Miss a few years ago at the Ford Center, David. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was uh, like a storytellers type deal where um, he was going to play songs for, you know, it's a very small theater and it wasn't promoted at all. They didn't let it get out so that there wouldn't be a lot of, you know, though he want he actually he was at the time finishing up his or had just finished his um, Southern Studies masters uh, in the study at, at Ole Miss, and uh, he was in. You know, he also at the time was working on his. Well, I'll tell this part first. So uh, when he told the story about why he wrote this one, it was so interesting. Um, Because I'd never heard it. I didn't know that. Um, It is so JoJo, though. Um, I I do have to admit, though, the style of the song is not my favorite. I love the fact that it's funny. It's a funny story, and it is so JoJo. JoJo's, he's a little bit like the kid walking around, maybe crossing the street looking at his phone, you know, uh, maybe need a little help. I know that the, the, uh, the roadies have time, have, well, back in the day, used to complain about not being able to find him before the show and things like that. He's kind of that uh, the trouble child, I guess, in the band to a certain extent. Um, and uh, so this song is a funny story about that. But um, it's not one of my favorites, though. Really? How many times live, Sue Ann, how many times live would you hear yell out, what's going on? They would, you, you know, know a, up. a few, I guess... Like shows where I was really into it, the show anyway, and then it started playing. I would, I would get in it, into it too. It's just something about, I guess for me, I, 
as a piano player myself, and most musicians will do this, we'll project the way we want to play in our own style upon our idols, quote unquote. And when they do something maybe out of character for us uh, as a musician, we feel uncomfortable. I think that's kind of what happened for me the first time I ever heard this song live or on a bootleg, you know, and it kind of rubbed me that wrong way that first time. And it was such a departure in my mind from what I was expecting from Jojo because to me, he had been such a serious musician at the, up until that point, up until this album, actually. All of them had been so serious, quote unquote, in my opinion, on the albums before. And I'm, I, I was expecting that. That's the kind of musician I am. And so I, I feel like it's probably more a projection of my own style onto them rather than it being a, a not a up to snuff panic song. I think it's a great panic song. And some people absolutely just adore it, but it's it's a bathroom song for me, I have to say. And it, and it invokes or kind of gives me a Grateful Deadish vibe. And that, maybe I'm wrong on that, I don't know. But I remember the first time that I heard the song, played it a couple times, have listened to The Dead a lot. I, I don't know, I don't like to compare, but you know, certain things pop in your head, you know, Dave, when you listen to something, it reminds you of something. Right. And to me, it just had a Grateful Deadish type of vibe to it. I don't know if that means You know, right. no, I totally hear it, Rick. It sounds a lot like Althea in a way. Mm-hmm. It does sound a lot like Althea, the, the tone of it and the rhythm of the cadence, you know, it's, it's kind of, it is, I can see where you're hearing that in there. All right, so song number 10, Christmas Katie. We have the Dirty Dozen Brass Band making an appearance on this one. Um, I've never liked this song. I do like the outro to it, but other than that, uh, it's a skipper for me. Rick, what are your thoughts? Wow, Dave. <laughs> Buddy, I, you, John Bell, what do you want me to say? I mean, he is he's such a good vocalist. He paints pictures. He can paint images. And this is, again, going back to the theme of this album. You can invoke, I don't know what it's about. There's been stories and stuff. But, you know, Cadillac's role, I mean, JB just rolls that off. And the imagery that he's painting, I mean, you see yourself almost in New Orleans or somewhere at a a parade. And you see these old school 20s cars with... uh, you know, the, 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 the dresses and the women and, and, and people on the street. I mean, it, it, this is JV 100%. And the Dirty Dozen Brass Band influence in this song, it, again, we go back to that 99 year. You know, they played some shows with them and they had an impact and they were, you know, they that influence was all over this. And they just, the swing in this song, I mean, it is a great tune. The outro is just typical panic, but where they go into the jam, but just, man, it just, it just what makes this band so damn good is they have the ability to, 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 to go from one arm Steve into a nice little swing song like this. And it just, I never fast forward through it. I love it. I, 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 I grin when I hear it because it is, it really showcases just how damn good John Bell is as a singer, the way he can invoke images and make you think and uh, tell a story. And, and, and uh, It's just a unique song. And again, I still think it goes with the theme of this album and 
I go again back to maybe the studio opus we were talking about, Beatles, the ability to lay a song in there like this, um, where it has such imagery and, and stuff. I mean, that's widespread panic right here, man. And this is where the variety of this album, they were comfortable again in their skin to put this album, song on this album. You can hear it. And uh, I just think it's a gem, man. Again, if you were to make a top 10 list, I don't believe I would put this on there. Maybe not even come to mind. But it is one of those songs when I hear it, I never fast forward through it. And I've heard it live. I've seen them do it with the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. And it's just a fantastic vibe. And, uh, you know, Christmas Katie, man. That's just John Bell all over. <laughs> all right, Sue Ann, tell me why I'm wrong. Okay, you're not wrong, David. I think you're right. Um, I think that the song does – well, I think you are, are just as right as he is because I, I just jotted down on my, my a note here while Rick was talking. I realized how – you know, panic songs are so much like religions or, you know, the way it works because the songs all have the same words, just like a Bible has the same words. People are reading the same thing, but everybody's going to get a different uh, meaning from it. It's going to mean something different to different people. Um, Christmas Katie does its job. When you hear it, you hear New Orleans. You can see that woman's, you know, uh, sashaying down the street. You can see that Cadillac rolling slowly down, down, uh, you know, in the French Quarter. I, uh, I love the Dirty Dozen Brass Band. I actually <clears throat> got to know certain members of them, <clears throat> excuse me, quite well back at that time, um, around 98, 99, because a good friend of mine was helping to manage them. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the at the time there was a trumpet player in the band named Ephraim Towns. He's one of the greatest friends I've ever had. One of one of the nicest, one of my most favorite friends ever. He's from New Orleans. Uh, and uh, the year that Dirty Dozen opened for Panic in uh, New Orleans, it was 2000, I believe. <clears throat> and uh, we went down there. Uh, and that's where, of course, Dirty Dozen is from. But they had a hotel room in the same hotel that Panic was staying in, we were all staying in the block on the floor with Dirty Dozen. And so I got to meet uh, Ephraim's lovely wife and his son, Ephraim Jr. And uh, at the time, Ephraim Jr. was about 12 or 13, I believe, maybe a little younger. And <laughs> Ephraim, right before this show started, oh no, this must have been a show I had met Ephraim's wife before, shortly before this. Uh, and expected her to be there. She couldn't be there for some reason. And maybe it wasn't actually anyway. It, one of the shows early on. Ephraim tells me right before he goes on stage that my job is to keep up with little E.T. That's what they called him, his son, little E.T. And at this point, I'm in college back then. You know, I, I never even babysat. I didn't even know how to change a diaper. And I said, you know, Ephraim, you can't leave me in charge of this kid at this show. And he said, I trust you. It's, he's from New Orleans. It's going to be all right. And, um. I'll never forget that. It was a special night for a lot of reasons. That was one of the best shows I've ever been to. One of the tightest runs that, that Panic has ever done. Definitely in contention with the, for me, with the hottest crowd I ever saw uh, live. Um, that crowd, that whole three-night run was so on fire for that band. And every song they played, it was a monumental thing to watch. Where was that? 
It was uh, Halloween 2000, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It might have been 90, you know, at this point, 98, 99, and 2000 all running together with me. Oh, yeah. Because it's been so long. And really, I, I did the majority of sh- racking up shows during those years because there were so many. Uh, that's when they had first started those uh, night-to-night runs that mm-hmm. they would do or the little uh, – like they did the little uh, uh, tours, mini tours of like uh, the East Coast and things like that. We would just follow them around. But um, I just wanted to add that because um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Big E.T. is not with us anymore. I just wanted to, to put his name out there and say he was one of the finest men I ever knew. Um Brought so much to Dirty Dozen Brass Band, and, and he's so missed. Um, but we're so glad. I'm so glad that his music will always be with us, you know, and that people will hopefully not forget about him and his contribution to the panic scene, man. Well, that leads us into uh, maybe up until that point the most hard-rocking song they've ever recorded, and that is All Time Low. Rick, your thoughts? Right next to Surprise Valley, this is on this album. This song's fantastic, and it just—I don't know, man. It, this is just classic for them. Uh, you know, even without Dotty Peoples, I've heard it live. You know, the non-studio version. Just the groove in this, and and it's got a—it's it, got a an acoustic vibe. Yet, it just—it just would fit. I think All Time Low would fit on any other albums, especially some of the earlier ones Dan mentioned. Uh, just, you know, again, you know, Dave Matthews was hitting real big in the 90s. When I was, and this song just blended in with, I don't know, I just love this song. It's just a killer tune. It just grooves. I, I think the, the words to it are just, uh, I, I think you could apply it to right now what's going on in the world. I mean, when they hit, I think my principles are reaching an all-time low. Dude, you, that, just, that just rocks. I mean. I've seen JB sing this live. In fact, the first time I heard it again, I go back to the Salem show I was at in Virginia. Uh, they closed the first set out with this song, and I mean, they ripped the roof off this place with this song. And I, it was the first time I heard it. And when they were done with it, I just looked at my buddy and I was like, "Holy cow! What a freaking rocker!" So yeah, this again, they just get going on this, and JoJo's bluesy piano over top of that that groove. And then, you know, of course, you got Dottie Peoples on there with the backup singers. They did it, I believe, at the Millennium Show with Dottie Peoples. So you could probably tell more about that. But I uh, I don't know, man. This is a rocker. I love this song. And it's uh, it's a top tenor panic song for me. And, and on this album especially, man, I've got, you know, right there behind Surprise Valley. I just, I've always liked this song from the word go, man. Well, sometimes, Sue Ann, it's always good just to let it all hang out. Well, I, I yeah, I think on all time low, all time low is all of like all around one of the most authentic, best panic songs when you consider all factors of what a great panic song should be. Um, especially to me because of the message that it sends. Because the speaker in the song, you know, the narrator is not laying blame on anyone else. Uh, you know, in saying that he's gotten himself in a bad situation or herself. Um, it's uh, so relatable. 
it's also one of the home team songs, like I like to call them, where it's like a like you're at an Ole Miss football game and we're winning for once. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I just love that. I was a cheerleader, so I'm always that's kind of what I I, I just feel like I'm cheering on the the show when that's going on. Um, I was trying to see when it was first played. It was first played on four eighteen ninety eight, and I'm trying to look up on Everyday Companion when that was, because, what show that was, because several of them debuted on that night. One Arm Steve, Christmas Katie, and All Time Low all debuted that night. Do you guys have Everyday Companion there near you? Where you I do, it? but, you know, they've got on that Northampton release, release that they did for those archival shows, mm-hmm. the last one they did, it's on there, and I don't know. If that isn't the first time, or it's certainly in its early stages of that song, because it, it's not quite what it came out to be, but you could hear it, man. I know I heard it for the first time on 4899. Okay, here we go. I, I think I might have it up. I'm sorry, David, if I'm taking up too much no, of your time you're fine. here. We might have to cut some of this while I'm looking on my very old Android and waiting it for waiting for my page to load. Okay, let's see. 418. Okay, it must have been a special show because I don't have it listed in regular show list. Four eighteen ninety eight. Oh wait, let me see. I'm... Okay, well, well we'll do that. We'll what, do that another time. Well, since well it's for sure. Like just a, just a fun one to hear live, and the crowd always gets going with. It. Especially, like I said, when it kicks into the part, you know, my principles are reaching an all time low. Um, yeah, just a just a great rock song, and reminds you that at at their core they're still a rock and roll band, um, and that leads us to what I think is their best song to close an album out with. Uh, again, one of my favorite widespread panic songs, and this one just kind of mellows you out. It's uh, the uh, the classic JoJo Herman, "Nobody's Lost." Sue Ann, what are your thoughts on it? This is one of my all time favorite panic songs across the board um i wish so much that i could remember the tape the bootleg i had with it on there so i would know what show it was that i was exposed to hearing it first i heard it on a bootleg before i ever went to a panic show i'm almost positive let's see when it was um yeah it was debuted on 1996 and i think that's the show i had because um, Andy, my friend Andy, who passed away, and I sang it this way, he given it to me, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, the version I had was absolutely phenomenal. And that's when I fell in love with JoJo's voice. Uh, his, you know, he's my favorite in the band. Of course, I play piano, so he would be. But with this song, he grabbed me and pulled me in, you know, uh, in the panic way. Um, I love so much the way it paints a picture again uh the musical painting uh the cadence and the rhythm of the song is so laid back yet syncopated that you totally feel like you're in that car with those windows down riding around taylor mississippi smoking something you probably shouldn't be smoking um and laughing about the people that don't care where you are um with somebody who feels the same way you do about not caring whether or not people care where you are. Um, I'm 44 years old. So where I grew up in the Mississippi Delta growing up, there was nothing at all to do. 
except ride around. That's what we did. David can attest to that. Um, I probably did a lot more riding than David did because I, um, I was determined to ride the road and, and, uh, be a road warrior. But, um, and it's also where I listen to music by myself. Uh, so that was another reason. It, it, so it just brings back so many memories for me to Ole Miss. I, I just think about growing up in the Delta, riding around uh, in the country, drinking beer with good friends, and it not being anybody's loss. It's just a real special song for me. Rick, is it special for you? Yeah, it is. You know, again, it's, it's panic thrown through. But I tell you what, if panic was to ever call it quits, and they were to play a last show. I think they could sign off with this song. I think I think it, again, alludes to their egoless style where they don't take themselves too seriously and just basically nobody's lost if they're not around. It, it would be huge for us. But I think, again, it goes back to just has been their personality. What has endeared them to their fans is they just never – seen themselves as anything other than just a good old rock and roll band and, and playing for the people. And it just, uh, you know, they could play two songs, end of the show and nobody's lost and probably call it a career. And uh, just, a, just a cool way to close an album. Uh, again, I still think it goes thematically with the album, which I think that what makes this album again, while we're talking about it so unique, it showed you all of Panic's styles on this album. It added new layers to their music. And this is another one, again, may have a little Grateful Dead-ish vibe to it. I don't know. But just a cool little song, man. And it uh, is a hell of a closer. I never fast-forward through this one. And uh, I love singing along with it. I love the harmony, the melodies, the, the guitar line. And it's just, it goes with it. And it's got a, it, and we're back. It has that little swing vibe back in there. That we had in Blue Indian. has a little swing vibe we had in that Christmas Katie. Right. So it's in there, which is thematically with this album. And on that note, I, I hate to bring up any kind of a bad subject when it comes to Wildsworth Panic, especially something that could be construed as negative that gets attached to them all the time, such as the drugs, the drug scene that tends to follow all bands, you know, but the jam band scene tends to be played with, um, you know, things like overdoses, uh, things like that. And I, I remember when I was in college, the big thing was ecstasy. People were taking, a lot of people were taking ecstasy and the overdoses would happen. They would get overheated, right? And they were dehydrated, overheated, heat stroke. And I, I felt like, I feel like now that I'm older and I look back on these slower songs that Panic pulls out, it's times they do, uh, you know, now that I'm older, I think about, where they placed them in the set list in relation to other songs that are really fast. And it seems like I, they came to a point in their career, maybe they realized they needed to give us a slow down song every once in a while, because some people will literally dance themselves to death. And I know that sounds crazy, but it actually happens. <laughs> it happens that people get so excited sometimes and drugs don't even have to be a part of it at all. Um, and I hate to even put it this way, because it kind of sounds like idol worship. I don't mean it that way at all, but people go nutty for this band. You it's know, true. it's a, it is a cult following, whether we like it or not. I wouldn't call it a cult at all, uh, but by its most basic definition, it fits. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm always a big fan of like, if you go to a rock show, song number three or four needs to be kind of mellow. Um, exactly. And, yeah. and for, for a lot of reasons. Well, listen, guys. Um, and for them too. Yeah, yeah, for them too. Um, you guys both knocked it out of the park. I knew this was going to be fun. Uh, we've done almost two hours now. Uh, and it went by pretty quick. Uh, like I said, I've been wanting to do this one for a while, and uh, you both turned out to be the perfect guest. Well, time flies when you're having fun. I, I had no idea it, was, it had been that long, and I, I've so enjoyed talking about my, one of my favorite things in this world, widespread panic. Thank you so much, David. And and Rick, you uh, you you lived up to your billing, uh, <laughs> knocked it out of the park. Hey, everybody, it's David. I just wanted to hop in here at the very end. Had a few issues with the uh, recording and the audio at the very end. I do want to thank uh, Sue Ann Strider and Rick Barley for joining us this week on uh, the podcast and just had a really good time talking about Widespread Panic, just one of uh, our favorite bands, and I hope you enjoyed it. I've been wanting to do that one for a long time. It's going to give you a quick update that uh, Chris and I are probably taking the rest of the year off, uh, and we'll uh, get back with you uh, in January. We'll have our top 10 albums of the year episode uh, then, and then I want to do a Bruce Springsteen episode. So uh, nothing's wrong. We're just going to take a little time off. Chris actually may do uh, one or two on his own, he told me. So, uh, you know, those would be good and look forward to that. And like I said, I had audio issues at the very end, so I uh, didn't get a chance to do our playout song. So uh, I took it upon myself to pick this one. It's one of my favorite songs by Widespread Panic and one that uh, I think all of you will enjoy. Here's the way. Here's the way.